mentioned before, the class I took as a third-year law student, it was titled Blood Feuds. Now, why would a law student learn about blood feuds? Well, it was one of those, you know, third-year, senior slide kind of courses. It really was. But we studied the ancient Icelandic sagas, sagas that were written probably in the 980s or 1080s, describing heroic tales of conquest and woe. And we just studied these. And we was with a legal philosopher, uh, a, a, a one who had written several books. And his theory was, he told us, human nature hasn't changed. Just the means of addressing conflict have. He was sending us out into the world as lawyers to try to resolve disputes in court and through adjudicated settlements or, or, or voluntary settlements. I suppose the message was, that's a better means of resolving disputes than putting an ax into the back of someone's skull. I think we could agree on that. That was how the Icelandic people loved, apparently, to solve their disputes with a well-placed ax or burning someone's house down on them. It really was uh, remarkable. Human nature, he said, hasn't changed just the way that we hopefully resolve disputes has. Well, I start there because when we come to this passage in Mark chapter 10, we find that human nature really hasn't changed. And in fact, the culture hasn't changed all that much either. Here in these nine verses that we're going to be dealing with in the book of Mark, as we've just been continuing our study through the book of Mark, no, I'm not preaching at anybody this morning. This is just next up in line, folks. This is where we are in the book of Mark. Jesus is talking about divorce and remarriage. And he's at talking about it because, as we see here in verse 1, he comes into the coasts of Judea by the farther side of Jordan. So he's now moved from the north of Israel around the Sea of Galilee down to the south of Israel in Judea. And notice the people resort unto him again. Wherever Jesus went, he was attracting crowds. And as he was one, as he was, was custom, he taught them. Again, this is what Jesus came to do. He came to teach. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Now, this word put away is simply the word that we would translate today, divorce. Is it lawful, is it permissible for a man to divorce his wife? Now, this question was a really hot one in Jesus' day. And Jesus was expected to answer the question. Notice that it says here that they were tempting him. They were testing him. They were not actually looking for a sincere answer. They were just simply trying to trap him as they did so often. And Jesus is going to address the subject of divorce and remarriage. Now you say, well, why has human nature not changed and why has culture not changed? Well, human nature has not changed because today many are looking for a loophole in God's design for marriage. We have, of course, the legal construct in our culture of no-fault divorce. The idea that you can literally get married, get divorced for any reason. This would have resonated deeply, as we will see, with the Pharisees of that day who loved the idea of being able to get married without any concern. Thank you there. So here, this human nature has not changed, but the cultural expression of it had not either. In Jesus' day, we'll find 
Divorce was extremely permissive. Divorce was tragically common, and it was having a real material effect on the society around them. And we can say the same for our day today. Divorce rates that can be as high as 40%. What we're seeing today is an increasing divide in the permanence and the stability of marriages. Those who have higher socioeconomic stratas and higher education levels are getting married and staying married, and increasingly those at the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum are either not getting married or are not staying married. There is a divide in America, and it is having significant effects. What does the Bible say about this very controversial and very difficult and sensitive topic that has touched so many of our lives? What does the Bible say about divorce? Well, I want us to notice first, when Jesus addresses the subject of divorce, he doesn't start with divorce. What does he start with? Well, notice, verse 3, he answered and said unto them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. Jesus answered and said unto them, for the hardness of your heart he wrote you this precept, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain, two, they two shall be one flesh. So then they are no more two, but one flesh. When Jesus talks about divorce, he doesn't start with divorce. What does he start with? Marriage. And we're not going to be able to understand what Jesus says about divorce until we really take seriously what he says about marriage. We can't understand what is divorce and remarriage in God's eyes until we understand what he made marriage to be in the first place. So this morning, I don't intend to speak on the subject of divorce. That'll be next week. What I'd like to do this week is I'd like to start with Jesus and say, what is marriage? What is marriage in God's eyes? Not the cultural expression of it. Not the predominant world view on marriage today. What does God say? And what is his priority when it comes to marriage? The title of the message this morning is simply Marriage God's Way. Marriage God's Way. And what I trust we'll see this morning is that God feels quite strongly about marriage because it's his idea. It is his institution. Not only that, if we are going to take seriously what he says about marriage, we have to acknowledge and respect his authority here. He made marriage. He made our marriage. He has the right to say what we do with it. Let's take a look at marriage God's way here this morning. And we're going to start, first of all, with what I'm going to call man's philosophy. Man's philosophy on marriage. Because really, as I started with, that philosophy, we're going to find, has not changed very much. Notice again the question that they ask to Jesus. Is it lawful for a man to put away, to divorce his wife? Now, they are asking Jesus to put in a, a teaching, an interpretation of the Old Testament law. Now, we're not going to turn there. I'll just read it to you. But you might put in your cross-references here, Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1. Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1. This is the teaching in the Old Testament concerning divorce. Now, I'll just read that for you, verses 1 through 2. Moses says, When a man has taken a wife and married her, 
and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. Uncleanness in her. Then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. Okay, that's Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 2. So the Pharisees had this Old Testament precept. And their debate internally among themselves was, what does this mean? What does Moses mean? What's he saying? And Jesus appeals to that. His immediate reaction is, well, what did Moses command you? Let's notice what they say. And they said Moses suffered or permitted to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. Now stop there for just a minute. We'll get into this more next week. Jesus says, what did Moses command you? And they said Moses permitted. You see the difference between a command and a permission? A command is go do this. A, a, A permission is you may do this. Big difference between those two things. And here, they say Moses permitted us to give her a bill of divorcement and then to divorce her, to put her away. Now, what does it mean here that the Pharisees are trying to test Jesus, are trying to entrap him? They, didn't, they weren't really honestly, sincerely sitting under his teaching as if to accept it. Well, what's going on here is that historians and scholars tell us there were two prevailing schools of thought when it came to divorce and remarriage in Jesus' day. One was the stricter view. It was from a man named Rabbi Shammai. And Rabbi Shammai said that this uncleanness that is mentioned here in Deuteronomy 24 means unchastity, means unfaithfulness. You cheated. And if your wife cheats on you, then you can give her a bill of divorcement and you can put her away. That was one prevailing view. But it was not the dominant view. It was not from what we understand to be the majority view. The majority view in Jesus' day was from a man named Rabbi Hillel. He had died just a little bit of time before Jesus was here on the scene. But his views were persisting to what I understand to be the dominant position. Listen to what one commentator puts it. He says, this school of Hillel, they interpreted that crucial phrase, uncleanness, that Moses permitted to write a bill of divorcement. As widely as possible. They said that it could mean if the wife spoiled a dish of food. If a wife burned your breakfast, you could divorce her. They said that if she spun in the streets, that is if she revealed her ankles publicly, you could divorce her. If she talked to a strange man, if she spoke disrespectfully of her husband's relations in her hearing... Wives, you better not talk about your mother-in-law like that, okay? Or you're getting divorced. That, this was this permissiveness. If she was a brawling woman, in fact, Rabbi Akiba even went the length of saying that if it meant if a man found a woman who was fairer or more beautiful in his eyes than his wife was, he could divorce her. So you can imagine now the Pharisees in this world in which divorce is broadly permitted for just literally about any reason, they come to Jesus and says, Jesus, what do you think? Well, think about what they're putting in the test to. They're saying, what are you going to have to say about what Moses said? Are you going to contradict Moses? On the other hand, you're talking, you're a very popular teacher. They envied him. They did not like that he had a big following. This popular teacher, or are you going to speak really hard on divorce? 
guess what's going to happen if you speak really hard on divorce? What are, all, what are the people who are going to be, who are divorced in your crowd going to do? They're going to leave you. They were trying to put them in an untenable position. How are you going to step in it on this one, Jesus, when you say what divorce and remarriage is all about? I just want to pause there. We'll get into this more next week on the subject of divorce, but I want you to think for a moment about the philosophy of marriage that underlie all, that underlay all of this. What was the philosophy of the Pharisees, especially the broader school? It was effectively this. Your marriage is designed to serve you as an individual. That means if your marriage is not serving you in the way you desire, maybe because your wife burned your breakfast, maybe because she's dissing your mother-in-law, maybe because you're fighting a lot, then in that case, when your marriage is no longer serving your personal self-interest, you divorce her and you can find someone else and see if that works better. I want to say that is that was the prevailing view of divorce in Jesus' day. I should say at least as it was relating to men. Women didn't have it like that. They usually had to get the consent of their husband to divorce. No, men, they had the power. They could just divorce. Now, I want, I want to stop there because I'd ask you whether our cultural view of marriage today, not the biblical view, the cultural view is that much different. How often do you hear the kind of philosophy of marriage as find someone who completes you? Find someone who makes you better? Have you ever heard that idea? Find someone who is going to help you grow as a human being, as a person? The, I would say the prevailing philosophy of marriage in, in our day today is the idea that marriage is to kind of make us better. I've got an, an illustration here. I want you to pretend that this is kind of our marriage. And this is us, husband, wife. I think it's a little bit like this. We view marriage as kind of being a benefit to us. And marriage is kind of filling us up. And we fill ourselves up. It's making us happy. It's making us content. It's satisfying us. And this marriage is this kind of fountain that's supposed to fill each other up and make us better and make us a better version of ourselves. That's marriage. We see the challenge with this philosophy is that it puts us on a very unstable footing. Because the moment that we look at marriage and we say, wait a second, husband, you're getting filled up way more in this marriage than I am. Wait a minute, wife, I'm contributing a lot more to the marriage than you are. Your cup is a lot more full than mine is. Where are you at? He's saying, this isn't working out too well for my self-interest, I'm not feeling too fulfilled. I'm not growing too much. How many times have you heard someone who is at the point of divorce or past the point of divorce say, we just grew apart. We just, we just couldn't make it anymore. What is happening? What is happening is that we have a philosophy of marriage that is based on I, me, and mine. How's the marriage serving me? Well, I want us to ask when we come to Jesus' view of marriage, his philosophy of marriage, 
Is that his? And let's look together now at verse number 5. Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. Now, we'll get to that next week. What does that actually mean? But for a moment, look at what Jesus says from the beginning. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Secondly, I want to talk from man's philosophy. I want to talk about God's principles. What are God's principles for marriage as Jesus himself expounded them? Well, the first one, notice what it is. It is that marriage complements. Now, I don't mean compliments with an I, like you say nice things about a person. I mean compliments with an E, like you fit together. You complement each other. Notice what Jesus, the first thing he says is, from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Now, I just have to say by way of footnote here, it is tragic that our culture is losing the truth of this simple phrase. In the beginning, he made them male and female. And if we're going to stand on the truth, even in this culture with so much confusion about how many genders and all, it, 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 God made them in the beginning male and female. And we can stand on that truth together. This is God's doing. It is his work, and it is the devil's job to confuse and to divide and to frustrate. Marriage compliments. What does this mean? It simply means this. Your wife and, and you are very different. Can we all agree there? Can we all agree that husbands and wives are different? Again, even this is under attack to some level, but it reminds me of, of an old joke. The, the husband and the wife go to the counselor and marriage counselor, and the marriage counselor says, what are, you, what are you here for? What brought you here? And the wife says, it's my husband. He takes everything so literally. It just drives me nuts. I can't deal with it anymore. And so the, the counselor turns to the husband and says, well, what brought you here? And that's what he says, my truck. Yeah, that we, we are very different as, as husbands and wives. Men and women, we see things differently. We hear things differently. Some of you have heard Emerson Egerich in his book, Love and Respect. He talks about how men speak into a blue microphone and have blue earphones on and they hear everything. And the wife speaks into a pink microphone and has pink ear, uh, uh, ear, ear, uh, earbuds on. This is how we operate. Now, why would God do it like this? Why would God's view, his principle of marriage, be two people who in their own ways are completely different? Well, I think we'll talk about that. We'll get to that in just a minute. But God's principle, first of all, is that you and your spouse are going to be completely different in ways that even as you're entering marriage, you can't possibly identify altogether. And a healthy marriage recognizes that difference and embraces it. Doesn't run from it doesn't hide from it, embraces that God intended two very different people to come together in this relationship. Notice the second thing, marriage creates. Marriage complements and marriage creates. Notice in verse number six, from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother. Now stop there for a minute shall leave his father and mother. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 2 at the very beginning. Now, why would God specify that marriage involves leaving father 
mother. Friends, what is one of the two predominant relationships across all of human society and all human history? It is the bond between a parent and a child. And until you have a child, you cannot truly understand what that is. You who are parents, you are nodding your heads at me when, when you say, when there is a child that enters the world, like baby Finn Van Sisting just entered the world, there is a bond that is created between parent and child that is unlike anything other. There is, um, uh, some of you may have heard earlier last year, Michael Gerson, who was a speechwriter for um, the first uh, George W. Bush administration and a, a, a contributing author to the Washington Post passed away. And one of the most famous articles that Michael Gerson wrote was the pain that he experienced when his child went to college. And if you've never read it, look it up, Michael Gerson on, on, a, on a child going to college. And he writes about this, this just separation and how difficult it was. He said these very interesting words. He says, his life, his son's life is starting for real. I have begun the long letting go. Put another way, he has a wonderful future in which my part naturally diminishes. I have no possible future that is better without input. Wow, I mean, if you've had a child go off to college or you've had that same kind of separation, you know what that separation, the disruption of the parent relationship and the child relationship. You say, why is God doing something so disruptive? A parent leave, uh, sorry, a child leaves behind his father and mother and marries his wife. Do you see? It's because God is saying something new happens in marriage. Marriage involves the creation of something entirely new, entirely independent, and entirely exclusive. Notice what he says. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, leave them behind, and cleave to his wife. That word cleave there, it literally has the idea of gluing together. Gluing together. My mom will remember this. I think it was, I think it was me right outside here at the church. There was a cold evening, and we used to have a black railing that went right out across the front of the church. Some of you may remember that. And I'm, I'm nearly certain it was me. I was quite young. Stuck my tongue to that in the cold. And it didn't come off. And I'm just sitting there. And they got to go into the church and find some like warm water or something to unstick my tongue. My tongue was glued, okay? It was glued to that railing. That's the picture here. A husband, a, a man leaves behind, disrupts. His family relationship. Parents who have married kids, you know what it's like. You know what it's like. Dads, you know what it is to have that precious little girl. She's not your precious little girl anymore. You're not the rock in her life. Someone else is. And moms, you know what it is to have that son. He's not your baby boy anymore. You're not the number one lady in his life anymore. That hurts. It's painful. But God said it's necessary because there's creating something new in which a man and woman are glued. They are glued together into a separate, independent being. Now, one other thing. Marriage complements, marriage creates. And notice what Jesus says. Marriage combines. Look at verse 8. And they twain, they two, shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, they're no more two, but one flesh. 
Do you see what's going on here? I was struck by this as I thought. What does it mean when Jesus says, you're no longer two? It means when God looks at you, he doesn't see two individuals anymore. He sees one. It means in a real sense, your independent functioning has ceased. Or to put it this way, you're no longer two different cups. You're one. You're one. Now, do you know this is true biologically as much as it is physically? When Jesus is speaking of this, he's speaking in some level about the physical union, the sexual union between a man and a woman. Paul actually brings the same idea in 1 Corinthians 6. He says if he's, he's calling this out of people, and he says, don't be sexually immoral. Don't be going to see prostitutes. He says, don't you know that if you join yourself to a prostitute, you become one flesh with a prostitute? You're the temple of God. Don't be joining yourself with everyone. The sexual union between a husband and a wife is part of their one flesh relationship. But it's more than that. In fact, we know now so much more today about a little hormone called oxytocin. Oxytocin is called the love hormone or the cuddle hormone. Do you know why? Because oxytocin is what our bodies release when we are together with a, another person. Um, it is true sexually. It is true even just in areas of physical touch, of just affection for one another. And oxytocin is what bonds us, glues us together. It's what helps us feel connected. It's what helps us feel in love with another human being. Like when we're dating and we can't stop but seeing one another. It is the powerful bonding that God made for a man and a woman to be Connected, combined, glued together. I want to pause there for just one second to say to those of you who are not married here today. Maybe you're in a relationship. Maybe you're looking to be in a relationship at one point. You're looking forward to marriage. Recognize that how God made you. Recognize that God didn't make you to be one flesh together until you have committed to one another. That means the predominant view in our society that as long as we love each other, we can sleep together. As long as we're thinking we're going to get married, we can live together. As long as we're aiming that direction, it's all right. No, no. What Jesus is saying here is that there is a bond that is a decisive break. I am breaking off my relationship. I'm leaving behind this fundamental relationship. And I am entering in publicly and permanently to this one. I have to say, biblically, Scripture tells us it is for the relationship of marriage that we are entering into that one flesh union. In fact, not only does the Bible recognize it, even our own culture and society is increasingly recognizing it. You know, there was a study that was done on those who had, quote, very happy marriages. Very happy marriages. Do you know who the lowest rate, and this is just a scientific survey, a study, the lowest rate of those who said they were very at, had a very happy marriage were women who had between six and ten sexual partners. Do you know that? They were the ones who reported the lowest rate of being very happy in marriage. Do you want to know who had the highest rate of being very happy in marriage? Men 
who were married to the only sexual partner they ever had. The highest rate of those who reported being very happy in marriage. And only one additional sexual partner being added to that mix had a five percentage point drop in report of very happy marriage for men, for women, and even more for men. This is what the University of Chicago said. Not exactly a biblical institution. For both genders, we find that virgins have dramatically more stable first marriages. Now, in the 2010s, 5% of women were entering marriage as virgins. Now, I don't mean this to shame you. I don't mean this to guilt trip you. If that's already something that you say, I don't qualify for that, the grace of God covers all of your sin. The grace of God can make you who he wants you to be. I'm not saying this to, to shame you. What I am saying this is to say, it's worth waiting. It's worth doing things God's way. He made you. He knows. And we can come in to that truth. Here's what one um, Baylor psychologist says. She says, we generally think that having more experience is better. But what we find for relationships is just the opposite. Having more experience was related to having a less happy marriage later on. For example, we found that people who had been married before, people who had lived with a boyfriend or girlfriend before, and having had more sexual partners before marriage were each associated with having lower marital quality later on. Again, if we do things God's way, we can expect that we are, well, I should say it this way. When we do things God's way, we are laying the foundation for experiencing what his desire for us is. So, the marriage is about complementing. Marriage is about creating. Marriage is about combining together in a one flesh relationship. Could we put it this way? If the worldly or predominant view of marriage is that your marriage pours out into each other's glasses to fill you up, God's view is exactly the opposite. God's view is you each pour into the marriage. And you are entirely, your individual self-interest, in a sense, is entirely to the side. Your, the health of your marriage depends on how much you are pouring into the marriage, not the other way around. Can we put it like this? The more my marriage focuses on I, me, and mine, and the less my marriage focuses on we, us, and ours, we're not understanding God's principles and his design for marriage. The more I focus on my own individual self-satisfaction, the more I focus on my own independent fulfillment from marriage, the, the, the weaker my foundation biblically is for this central relationship that God has placed in front of us. Now, let me just pause there for a moment. Is your marriage, if you are married here today, is your marriage founded on we, us, ours? Is your marriage founded on the idea that you are no longer two, but you're one? Do you know what we can say very practically about this? If you are married here today, if you serve your wife, you are serving yourself. That's what you're doing because you're one, you're not two. Wife, when you serve your husband to meet his needs, you're serving yourself. You are loving yourself because you are no more two, but you're one. Are we willing to embrace what God says about marriage? What marriage is his way. Marriage complements two very different people. 
Marriage creates a new, exclusive, permanent relationship. Marriage combines two people into one who from henceforth live for the relationship, for the marriage, not for each other. Are we embracing Jesus' plan on marriage? Thirdly, let's look at what I'm going to call the Christian practice. If there is man's philosophy, if there is God's principles that cut so clearly against it, and there's the Christian practice, what are we to do in our own lives? A phrase that has been on my heart and may be helpful for you this week is simply this. You are one if you're married to your bishop. So be one. You are one. So be one. Now, do you know this is so often how God works? This is so often a theme of Scripture. We've been talking about it in our evening services recently. God says, you are holy if you're a Christian. Why? Because when you got saved, the Holy Spirit moved into you and brought the nature of God, the holy nature of God, into you. You are holy. And so what does God say? Be holy. I have made you holy from the inside. So be holy in everything you do. Let it come to every area of your life. You are holy, so be holy. And God says the same thing in marriage. You are one. So what? So be one. Be one. Now, very briefly, I just want to touch on three areas I think are so essential if we are going to be one in our marriages. The first thing is this. Resolve conflict. Resolve conflict. What drives us apart in, as oneness in marriage are the kinds of conflicts that so often start small and so often grow very, very big. Do you know my encouragement to you? There will be no marriage-ending conflict that you have if you take care of it when it's small. Ephesians chapter 4 has some words that have been such an encouragement to Tabitha and to me in our marriage. It says, the scripture says, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. And it has been the commitment of our marriage that we will not go to bed with unresolved conflict between us. We won't. And I can't tell you because we are like every other couple. We have plenty of disagreements. We have plenty of marital conflict. We have plenty of challenges, and we have had plenty of 3 a.m. conversations where both of us are exhausted, but we committed early in our marriage, we will never go to bed with unresolved conflict, even if I have to get up for work the next morning. Now, I say this as encouragement to you because this is possible, and I can say through no goodness of my own, I can honestly say Tabitha and I would say we have no unresolved conflict in our marriage, that we we boxes that we put in the shelf we can't touch on that one that's too hard that's too difficult it's not because for lack of conflict it is simply an encouragement to you that you can have a marriage that resolves conflict effectively that does it god's way now i want to say to you encouragingly today if you're at a place where you say i'm past that point We've got boxes that we've shoved under the bed and under the closet. We can't deal with it. We can't talk about it. You know what? You might need help, and that's okay. That's okay. There's an idea, I think, especially I'm going to talk to us as guys, as husbands. We think that oh, if I go and see a counselor, a Christian counselor for help, I, I'm in, I'm, it's a shame. 
I'm, I'm admitting my failure, and it's our pride that holds us back. Friends, let me just put it this way. How many of us, if our check engine light goes on in our car or we start hearing some clunking in our engine, we say, well, I would never think of bringing that into the car dealer, the mechanic. I will take apart the engine and do it myself. How many of us honestly say, I'm, I'm too proud to go to the car dealer, to go to the mechanic? Well, maybe some. But I would suspect certainly not most of us. You know, it should be no more shameful to go into someone and say, you know what, I need help. I need help. I want to know. The, the, the check engine light came on. We can't figure it out. Because there's some clunking in the engine. We've got some unresolved conflict. And I will say, I, we will support you 100%. I have benefited from, from professional counseling, marriage counseling. There are many in this church who would say, we have been too. It is not something to be ashamed of. It is something to embrace if we are going to pursue what it is to do marriage God's way. The second thing is this, is to pursue oneness with each other. You are one, so be one. Pursue intimacy together. You know, there, I saw something when we were talking about this oxytocin, this hormone that God has given you to be bonded and connected together. Do you know there was a study that was done on what actually increases oxytocin? They actually tested oxytocin levels where couples were doing things together. Do you know what they found? Couples' oxytocin was boosted by doing painting together and by playing board games together. Now, these were, these were just two examples, but they actually tested oxytocin levels, and they said those two just seemingly very small things together actually increased the hormone that God has that helps us feel connected. Go home and play some board games. No, I'm just kidding. Whatever you do. But here's what this researcher says. Justifying small ways to make any activity one where we are touching our partner, whether that's touching of the arm or around the shoulder, could be useful. Maybe it's the interaction of saying encouraging things and the touch that are happening at the same time. God made us to be bonded by just affectionate touch with one another, kind words to each other, quality time with one another. Our goal as husbands and wives is to pursue that, is to pursue oneness in our relationship. Here's the third thing. Remain hopeful. I think for some of us, we look at our own marriage experience, and maybe we know that we're not exactly doing it God's way, but we don't, we don't see any hope of changing. We might be at the point of despair. My point simply is this. Notice what verse number 9 says in chapter 10. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Who is the one who puts you together in marriage? God. God says, I join you together. Therefore, you don't separate. I join you together. Friends, no matter where you are in your marriage today, I want to encourage you with the hope that if God put you together, God can fix what is, what is harming your marriage right now. God can fix what is driving you to frustration right now. I want you to see what even uh, a researcher said. He says in a study he did, I helped, he helped author, 34% of married respondents reported that at some point in the past, they thought their marriage was in serious trouble and considered divorce. He said of these folks, 92% reported that they were glad they were still together. Be hopeful. Wherever your marriage is now, that does not mean that the God who put it together in the first place cannot work redemptively 
to restore what you are doing in it today. So you see, friends, the question for us is, are we going to look at marriage man's way, the world's way, the philosophy that marriage is just simply all about filling each other up and making ourselves better? Well, marriage will make you better if you do it God's way. Marriage will fulfill you if you do it God's way. He's the one who put it together. The question is whether we're going to embrace God's way, that I'm no longer my own, that my life as a married couple is about the marriage, is about filling up the marriage, because that's filling up me, about investing and sacrificing for that one flesh relationship that God says, because I joined it, because I'm the one who put it together, let no one put it apart. You see, the question that we should all ask ourselves as we look at marriage this morning is, why did God make marriage in the first place? Why did God put this relationship together? And I think about that particularly because of what Jesus says in Matthew 22. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who are again trying to trap him. This time it's the Sadducees. The Sadducees are trying to challenge his view of the resurrection by saying, a woman got married seven different times. And now when she gets to heaven, who is she going to be married to in heaven? And Jesus says these words. He says, ye do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. See, friend, you won't be married in heaven. There are no eternal marriages. You won't have a spouse in heaven. That's what Jesus says clearly. You say, well, then why did God implement a temporary marriage on which all of human society is based? Because in heaven, friend, there's only going to be one marriage. There's only going to be one of those kinds of close, one relationship. It's going to be the relationship between God and his people. More specifically, it's going to be the marriage, the oneness between Jesus and the church that he died, sacrificed, gave himself to make his own. You know what marriage is? This temporary relationship that we have. It's a picture of exactly what Jesus did for you when he came to die. Marriage was Jesus emptying himself into the cup of redemption for you. He gave everything so that you could have a relationship with God. And now that same picture is when two people come into a marriage and say, it's all about this. It's not about me anymore. It's not about my needs and desires and dreams and fulfillments. It's about us. You are picturing what Jesus has done for you. And most wonderfully, you're picturing it through a kid who will see the way that you relate to one another, God willing, and recognize that picture through Christ and who Christ is and what he did for you. But there's one more thing. It's not just a picture of what Jesus did. It's a process that starts. It's a process of making you like Jesus. Your spouse is God's tool to make you look like Jesus. Your spouse is God's instrument to help you develop the sacrificial, giving love that reflected Jesus himself. 
And while we can look at this relationship and get so frustrated and so irritated and so challenged and say, why does it have to be so hard? It is hard. I don't care how good your marriage is. It's hard. Why? Because God gave it to you. He joined you together so that through that relationship, unlike any other, you would learn what it is to be what have we been studying together? What Jesus has been teaching us in Mark chapter 9 and chapter 13 before. He said, do you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Do you want to be great? Then you need to be last of all and you need to be servant of all. What's a good marriage about? A good marriage is about being last of all. And servant of all. And when we do that, when we walk married, Father, we thank you for this picture of marriage that we see here, marriage God's way. And we are challenged, Father, because we are so prone to be selfish. We are so prone, I am so prone to be independent, to pursue my own fulfillment, and to forget what it is that marriage is supposed to be for me, what process it is in my life. And so I ask, Father, that you would open our eyes, those of us who are married, to see marriage your way, to plead for your help, to recognize that you have made us one so we should be one. May we be able to humble ourselves. May we be able to resolve conflict, pursue reconciliation. May we be able to pursue that oneness that you've found. And may our life be a picture of that great love for your only love that Jesus has given us. Pause here with our heads bowed. Perhaps someone here this morning has not received the love that you sought. Perhaps you came in and you don't know whether your sins have been forgiven through the death and resurrection of Jesus. You don't know if you're a Christian here this morning. Maybe someone from our church would love to take a Bible and show you what it means.
Father, we thank you for hearing us. For Christ. What Christ has done for us, Lord, in showing us what this looks like in our lives. That Christ has given himself for us and shown himself, emptied himself for us. And Lord, I thank you for your pastor today and Jason. Lord, that through us, Lord God, that, that we are really emptying ourselves as well as into something um, that's invisible, but that you have called us into, that you have made us from. And God, I pray for each one of our marriages, Lord God, Lord, because we need answers in our marriages so you can teach us how to live this out, so you can move in us by your spirit to live this out. But also for you, Lord, to reveal to us who you are in us. God, I pray that we would be at work within us by your spirit, that only you can do that. And we thank you that you are at work in us, that you have called us to.